Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and producer of Season 2 of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students on the Forced Migration and Refugees course at LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the experiences of refugees themselves. For years, thousands of forcibly displaced people have been left in limbo in Calais, France where they suffer from a lack of care and police crackdowns. Recently, as the Russian war is devastating Ukraine and forcing millions to flee, European countries, including France, are opening their borders and homes to Ukrainian refugees. What explains such different responses? In this episode, Joanna Breteau-Klein sits down with Ruby and Holly, two volunteers of the Calais Food Collective, to discuss the issue. The Calais Food Collective is a grassroots organization supporting displaced people in Calais, primarily with cooking ingredients and equipment. We asked them about their experiences with government restrictions on the ground in Calais, and if they thought the efforts put towards Ukrainian refugees could be replicated. Joanna is an MSE student in the IDHE program specializing in the humanitarian impacts of climate change, and she works as an analyst for a think tank focusing on these issues. Being French, she was especially aware of her government's role in treating and hosting refugees, especially in the chaos of Calais. She wants to understand more about the role of government in handling asylum seekers and wants to work towards improving refugee hosting efforts. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome to today's podcast where we'll be looking at a practitioner's perspective on the French government's response to hosting refugees. We're joined here today by two guests, Ruby and Holly, who are both collective members in the Cali Food Collective. They are here today as individual practitioners and do not necessarily represent the views of the collective. The Cali Food Collective is a grassroots organization supporting displaced people in Cali and Dunkirk, firmly with cooking ingredients and equipment. They set up in spring 2020 as an emergency response to the pandemic, when other NGOs were forced to suspend services to ensure people had access to food. Today, they continue, they continue their work distributing ingredients, distributing every day across different sites in Calais and in Dunkirk twice a week, reaching approximately 1,500 people. The Calais Food Collective is part of the umbrella organization L'Auberge Migrant and operates with the support of Utopia 56, both of them NGOs, both of them being NGOs supporting refugees in Calais and across France. I would like to thank you both again for joining us today. To start off, could you tell us a little bit more about your day-to-day activities? Yeah, um, I'll just quickly clarify um, the introduction a little bit. Um, we actually don't work in Dunkirk, we just work okay. in Calais at the moment, um, and we're no longer a project of Le Berge de Migrant, independent, okay. um, <laughs> but um, yeah, just like an extra thing. Um, so the work that CFC does is um, focuses on water access and food distribution. We work seven days a week um, where we refill our four bulk water containers um, at sites across Calais. And we also distribute cooking ingredients to several different sites um, every three to four days. Um, and this is cooking ingredients on a mobile distribution. So we'll take food directly to where people are living in wheelbarrows. Um, 
and the goal is that people have a little bit more autonomy to decide how that they organize their day um, and also a certain level of dignity because they don't have to go somewhere and queue up for maybe hours um, mm. just to get very basic uh, requirements. Um, yeah, we also will refer people while we're on distribution to other associations that can help them in ways that we can't. So we could refer um, to Collective Aid, for example, so that they could get a tent. Or um, if it was a family, we could refer them to a women's centre who can offer um, like access to shelter or clothes or um, specific items that a really young child might need. Um, things like that, yeah, which is... I'd say just as important as the, the food and water because yeah. not many associations walk around all of the sites on a regular basis. So if we're able to yeah. go and go and see what the need is and refer them to someone else, then that might not happen otherwise for quite a long time. Yeah, we're actually the only organisation in Calais that does mobile distributions at the moment. Um, all of the other dis, uh, associations will do uh, static distributions, whereas we will go directly into the living sites. That's that's really cool. I mean, cool. <laughs> it also must be really hard to carry out, um, I guess, because it's not like an easy environment to do, um, especially mobile distributions. Um, I know that, for example, uh, food and water distributions for free have been banned by the préfet, local government, to keep NGOs from distributing food, um, like how does that, how do, does that impact your work? Um, do other government restrictions impact your work day to day? Yeah, um, so uh, the Arrete, uh, the Arrete yeah. was um, a Calais legislation that was brought in um, last autumn. The Arrete has actually been put in place in September 2020, not autumn 2021, but has been reconducted ever since. And it essentially uh, forbids the distribution of free food and water um, at a certain list of streets around Calais. Um, and this began as, um, began? Began as yeah. <laughs> just a few uh, streets. Um, and over the last seven months, it's expanded to now be um, most, most sites around Calais. Um, and in practice, uh, this means that we receive a lot of police intimidation and harassment um, because the police are able to fine us or uh, try to prevent our distributions on the basis of this legislation. Um, but, I think that the type of work that we do isn't necessarily, um, hasn't, hasn't changed. We're still doing the same work. It's just that um, we're faced with very, very, very regular um, police intimidation and harassment um, and also the um, financial burden of fines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do, you, how do you deal with this? Is it fines and then you can, you can pay them and then, or? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, well, the fines are, I think, in relation to the vehicles most of the time, because it, it specifies the street that you can distribute on. And yeah. then so we could park, for example, further away or not at the not at the street that is on the Areto and then walk food in, which is technically 
kind of a loophole. Um, yeah. So then that means that the the fines that we get can be contested, which um, a couple of our volunteers that specialise in yeah. like, advocacy um, will contest. Uh, I think all of the fines that we get, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also, I mean, it's a specific Calais legislation, but in in reality, it's it's actually very difficult for them to actively find people for mm. distribution distributing yeah. food. So most of the time they will find faults with other things, um, okay. like people not having a yellow vest or something like that in the van. Um, but uh, also the, the police act with impunity anyway. Um, a lot of the time they don't they don't know what the law is um, because uh, the CRS in Calais uh, uh, have six week um, contracts in Calais. So yeah. they're always very fresh. Um, so they, they don't know what's going on a lot of the time. A lot of the time they, they actually just make up things to try and prevent us to do things. And obviously it's, it's quite difficult to, to not be intimidated by mm. someone with a big gun. Because yeah, the CRS is the riot police. So sending a riot police is not mm. exactly... Yeah. Might not be yeah. difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah, like for example, um, we posted a video on our Instagram a few weeks ago of um, them forcibly removing us from a site with our wheelbarrows. And um, it was four, four volunteers and I think five CRS vans showed up in the end with tear gas and riot shields to prevent four, four young women with, mm. with wheelbarrows of food. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's quite crazy. Um, I'm sorry that you have to go through that as well. And it's great that you can still find loopholes kind of to, to still continue. Um, but yeah, I guess it must it must make it like the day to day activities really hard, um, and especially like mentally and like physically as well. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to um, like contrast the situation with that of uh, Ukrainian refugees in France. So as you know, the Russian war is devastating Ukraine and forcing millions to flee. Uh, European countries such as France are opening their borders and homes uh, to Ukrainian refugees. Um, in fact, Ukrainian refugees are protected under temporary protection, which allows them to travel, work, and live across Europe. In France, upon the proof of a Ukrainian passport, you can travel across the railway service for free. Um, they also announced uh, the preparation of 100,000 100, hosting spaces for Ukrainian refugees. Um, and like this host, this surge of generosity is incredible and is to be applauded. But I think it's interesting to contrast this with the situation in Kelly. Um, and I wanted to ask from your practitioner's perspective, like working on the field like in Kelly, why do you think um, the French government is having a different response to Ukrainian refugees? Um, do you think maybe the media has a played a role in this? Yeah, why, why do you think this is the case? Um... Yeah, it's hard to say without just um, acknowledging that it's down to skin colour, um, that Ukrainians are being treated differently. But I think it's also probably a lot of the time down to information sharing. Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't make headline news when other countries um, have, like, hundreds of thousands of displaced people. 
in, in a short space of time, which of course is happening all the time, but um, at least in the UK, it was headline news immediately and that's kind of sustained. So mm -hmm. I think aid responses come from um, like main, like national news platforms acknowledging that it's an emergency. Uh, yeah, and if this was to happen for, in response to other like wars, um, maybe the aid response would be different, but mm. obviously we don't know if that's the case. I think it's also kind of important to think about that we're talking about decades now of demonizing mm -hmm. um, asylum or displaced people from uh, Africa and the Middle East um, and referring to them as economic migrants rather than just people wanting to um, find a, a better life. Um, and that's been in pushed in a kind of disgusting way by um, most of the press in mm. especially in the UK um, but also in other European countries um, and I think there's also this idea that um, whenever there's any kind of um, suffering or uh, if there I think if there was a similar issue whenever there's been similar problems in um, the in the countries where a lot of people in Calais have come from, um, people expect that kind of suffering. It's not really news <laughs> anymore. And I think that's like the result of racism, mm. basically. Um, there's and, also, yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, there's also like such a focus on criminality mm -hmm. in, um, in the Nationality and Borders Bill, the, the phrases, people who don't deserve to be here and, um, like harsh legal penalties yeah. um, for people who yeah. enter the UK illegally. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I don't think it's widely understood that for people without papers, there is no safe and legal route at all. Mm -hmm. um, and this is why like people are considered an illegal immigrant because they don't get on a ferry because they don't have a passport. And mm. I think people associate um like this criminal image with um small like, boat yeah with small boat crossings um mm -hmm. and yeah this is the same language isn't associated with ukrainians because the effort has been put there to mm. transport people for mm -hmm. free on trains um yeah. and it's the same response is just not it's not happening for the other countries no i was just gonna say it is many 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 ferry crossings from the uk to france every single day and it costs 25 euros or pounds yeah. um for a foot passenger and if you don't have a passport or if you don't have the correct passport then you're not allowed to get on mm. but i don't there's this kind of myth that these people are choosing to take mm unorthodox routes to the UK and, and there are no safe passages yeah but even going back to what you're saying about like like criminalization of it like the fact that that you guys are just out here helping you giving out aid and the fact that this gets criminalized as well is kind of it reinforces the same the same dynamic I guess dynamics right yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely uh but yeah going back on what you were saying about 
what like the effort has been put for Ukrainian refugees and it's just not the case for other crises and I'm using um, like air quotes. Um, do you think it would be possible to have the same efforts that are put up for Ukrainian refugees for other, again, crises in air quotes? Or do you think it's just, it, it couldn't happen? I mean, I think that what the Ukraine um, crisis has proven is, is that actually it is very possible mm. to, um, to give people um, access to the things that they need when they arrive in, in Europe. And that it's not a problem of capacity. It's actually a, a political mm. problem. Um, it, it would be incredibly easy to to allow people safe passage and access to social welfare, housing, education, medical care, because they're already doing it for, I don't know, like is it over like two million people have already been absorbed by the EU. Yeah, no, that's really true. And what do you think that for you as an organization or as aid workers in Kelly, what would you need from the government to be able to give people the resources that they need and to be able to provide like appropriate care? Um, I think this is quite a difficult question because we don't think that the appropriate, um, if we're gonna say help and care, we don't think it should be given by NGOs and we don't yeah. think we should have to exist. So I think the action that we would want to see from the government is what we've seen for Ukraine, like waiving visas, Mm -hmm. um free transport um yeah social housing medical care all, all of the things that ngos um are trying to sort of like patch up almost like mm -hmm. fill a gap where the state isn't um providing resources if these resources were provided then the ngos wouldn't need um money or legal assistance or uh uh, yeah. yeah, resources. We we wouldn't need to be here. So I think, mm -hmm. yeah, we can't really say that a government outreach would necessarily help us because they would like negate our need to be here. Yeah, I think it just it shouldn't be the responsibility of, of NGOs to yeah help and care for displaced communities in Calais. Yeah, but even if you, when you look in France, the, um, like the arrival of Ukrainian refugees is handled by the Red Cross, even though there are instances to take, there's systems in place to do that, but it's still the Red Cross that's in the train stations saying, okay, yeah. you can go here, here. Yeah. Do you have any like, comments or anything you'd like to make? I, I think also, I think if you just think how much the UK government spends on the militarization of the UK French border, that's, I, I, actually, we have the figure somewhere. <laughs> I think it was last year, it was 55 million. Yeah. Um, like just yeah. in a year, and that is being spent. And it's on being increased. The police yeah. action that we see every day yeah. stealing tents, cleaning teams, um, taking all people's belongings, it's being spent on barbed wire. Yeah, barbed wire. Surveillance. We spent so yeah. much money on drones recently. Yeah. Um, um, and obviously paying like police officers like bands like yeah. there's so many Cali's yeah Cali's the most police um it has the most police officers per inhabitant in France 
Okay. And like for those, I don't know, Cali is a small town. It's not a big town. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I think if you just think of like how how much money that is and then how ridiculous the argument is that we don't have the, the funds or the capacity to to welcome displaced mm. people it's it's completely laughable um and then and the simile with rwanda as well like the amount mm. of money that, that will be spent on that is, yeah <laughs> no, you're right you're right and it's interesting also to get that from someone that's working like you guys see the reality every day of it how these voices do not make any sense from like a grant perspective well um anyways thank you so much for your time um and for your super in- interesting and insightful comments um i think you really highlighted like some of the critical issues that are um in the international but also like national and local sy- systems for um displaced people um and like the influence that the governments can have on that um so yeah, I'd like to thank you both again so much, uh, both for this and also for the work that you're doing out there. Um, if anyone would like to find out more about Ruby and Holly's work and of the collective itself, you can look at um, their website, Instagram page, and their Twitter page, and don't hesitate to support them. The Arete has actually been put in place in September 2020, not autumn 2021, but has been reconducted ever since. Thanks for listening to this episode in Season 2 of the Refugee Realities podcast series, hosted by the Department of International Development at the LSE and made possible by the Eden Catalyst Fund. We have more episodes on the way, so please do stay tuned.